places. Jesus is the light of the world, and in him is no darkness at all. Morning. Morning. How y'all doing? That's good. <clears throat> Did I say I teach this in a semester-long course? That's 35 <laughs> hours. Yeah. So um, we're going to do what we do because that's what we do. There's always enough time. It's just a matter of figuring out what you want to kind of do with that time. So we'll settle in and do the morning. I want to offer my thanks as well to... Um, the team and to Bob in particular for extending the invitation and to all of you for bringing your best self to this moment. It feels to me like as I've uh, listened to you kind of reflect in the larger group and in the hallways that you all have been doing whatever work it is that God has called you into in this moment and honor it and trust it and take it with you because it is yours. <laughs> and trust that you will continue to do whatever work there is that will be asked of you into the future. Uh, here's what we're gonna do this morning. I want to kind of pick up some of the pieces from uh, yesterday afternoon, and then I wanna think a little bit about justice-making communities and why forgiveness, why I tie forgiveness to issues of justice, um, which is part of the turn I make in thinking about justice, and then we'll kind of end with thinking about what is it that you need on your journey to continue on, either from somebody or from a community or from yourself. What are the resources you have as you move from this beautiful place into another space of the world? So that's kind of where we're headed, and as usual, um, feel free to chime in with questions or concerns or comments as we move through this. I want to start with a piece of scripture, though. <clears throat> this comes from Colossians. And it's right before that other part of scripture that some of us don't like to wrestle with very much. In, in this Bible, it says rules for Christian households. Um, this is right before it. <laughs> Uh, and this is right before it, which sets the stage for thinking about how it is that we might relate to one another as mutual beings of, uh, created in the image of God, I think. So here it is from the third chapter. Uh, there's this wonderful passage about the new life in Christ, and it ends with these words starting at verse 12. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. 
And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through him. Uh, that would be a couple of sermons there. That would preach. But I'm curious about what you heard as you listened to it. What kind of phrases struck you, or what did you... Clothed. Say it again? Clothed. Clothed. Ah, interesting. <laughs> Clothed. Pa <laughs> Patient. Where'd that come from? Thank you. Patience. Bear with one another. Yeah, such a powerful statement. How do you bear? How do you bear one another? <laughs> but bear, yeah, yeah, nice. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. I'm struck by what they didn't say. Yes. They didn't say use your power to control. Oh, interesting. Nice, 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 nice. Reminded me of the Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I commend this piece of scripture to you to kind of sit with as you uh, either do silence this afternoon, or this morning, silence in the car on the way home, maybe. Um, <laughs> or as you move through the rest of next week, because it's a text that I think is rich with possibility. And I appreciate this, what is not in there. There's not a sense of the powerfulness of people. There is a sense of the power of love, isn't there? Yeah, that love is the energy driver, if you will, for that. That's nice, yeah. Um, <clears throat> there's a kind of... Um, shoulding about forgiveness. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it says it right here. You should forgive. And it sometimes is not a helpful shoulding. I don't, I don't know um, if you all grew up thinking uh, much about forgiveness, except that I suspect that if you grew up anywhere around a church, you thought it was a good idea to forgive, right? <laughs> It, there's a kind of, you ought to do it. There's an oughtness about it. I remember, um, I told you a little bit about my grandmother, and I was a curious child who at fifth grade came home and said to my mom, this was like um, early 60s, said to my mom, I think I'm going to be a minister when I grew up. <clears throat> and my mom, who uh, didn't have the benefit of finishing her high school education, but was a postmaster like her mother, um, didn't say to me, well, you know, women can't do that. So by the time someone actually said that to me, it was way too late, right? Because <laughs> they did say it to me eventually. She didn't say anything about that. She just said, really? And all at once, uh, because it, this church was like, you know, if you had 15 people on a good Sunday, you were really doing good, and they were all related to each other. So, and she was a Sunday school teacher. So um, she formed and shaped my sense of what it means to forgive in some ways. And I remember a moment when I thought, I'd like to take communion and go up and have one of those little pieces of bread and that little, that was the bread and cup day, little cup day. 
And I said to her, well, can I go up to, to communion? And I have no idea how old I was. She said to me, well, is there anybody that you're angry at? And I said, well, there, there is, uh, yes, because uh, she probably knew that my cousin who lived right next door to us and I were having a little war at that moment in time because that's what cousins do when they're the same age and they grow up together. <coughs> and she said, well, you know, when you all figure out what to do about that anger, then the next time communion comes around, you can do that. Now, I have no idea where she learned how to say that, but I suspect it was in that little church. That there was a shouldness and oughtness about communion and its connection to forgiveness, if you will. Now, on really good days, I really like that. <laughs> and on other days, I want to say, don't rush too fast to forgiveness. It's not that you shouldn't do, walk the journey, but that there are some things that require more time, and it's in part because of the justice work that has to happen in the process of forgiveness, or the mutuality of a relationship that has to happen. And if you rush too quickly to forgive, not necessarily, I don't mean by that if you lean into it and say, I am going to forgive, I just don't know how I'm going to get there yet, that's different. If you rush too quickly to forgive, you might miss the opportunity to deepen your relationship with yourself and with God and with one another. Because it is the process that actually deepens the relationships. I also want to be careful about the way in which forgiveness becomes a club as in a, yeah, um, that we threaten people with forgiveness sometimes, and we don't mean to, but we're good people who really want people to feel better about life. So sometimes we say to people, well, you know, you're going to have to forgive. Well, I want to invite you to think about how you invite people into a process without saying to them, you have to forgive and here's what it's going to look like, or you have to forgive and I don't know what it looks like. Here's some ways to think about that. To say to someone, when you know someone is struggling with, I mean, we all do it in our families, in our relationships, in our churches, in our communities. To invite them into a process might mean, might look something like this. So what do you think went wrong? And what would it mean to address the wrongs or the injustices? How might you do that? And what do you need to walk, to walk that journey? Who do you need to walk with you? So inviting people to think about forgiveness is different than saying, and you should forgive. Now, here's one of the good news pieces that I think Judy has talked about in worship in ways that um, I have really appreciated. The liturgy is designed to remind us. It is not designed to hold a stick over us. So when it says, you are a forgiven people, it means you are a forgiven people, even if you don't feel that in your toes. And when it says, forgive others just as you have been forgiven, it doesn't say you have to do that right now. It says, journey into that. 
invite yourself and others into the process. But never hold out the expectation for someone else that there is a right way to do their journey. There might be helpful ways, but the rights and the wrongs of how one does a journey, um, that's where you want to suspend judgment. Let me stop there and see if that makes sense or if it triggers anything in your thinking. Okay, that was the easy part. <laughs> uh, you'll find another piece of paper at your table. I think there's some extras for if you didn't get one. Back, we might have a few. Anybody else need one? I'm going to give these to you to hold on to. Thanks. <clears throat> so today is the weaving day. I love that. Um, it's also the day of, in some ways, reminding ourselves that um, day one, two, and three are all connected. Because you can't do weaving without having something to weave, right? And you've woven some of your stories through the exercises you've done or the silent time that you've taken. I want to just talk a little bit about a couple of pieces um, from yesterday that I was thinking about last night. And I thought, oh, I want to go back and make sure I said that carefully. Um, <clears throat> the first thing is that the mutual investment in a relationship often determines how much work someone is willing to do to get to the other side. So when you're thinking about forgiveness, one of the things you want to think about is, is this a mutual investment in a relationship or am I more invested in this than other people or than the other person? Because if the other person isn't willing to walk the journey with you, it's not that you can't do forgiveness. You can do your part, but you can't do their part. So always kind of be clear that you get to do your own work and the best of all possible worlds, which is once in a while, there's a kind of mutualness about the work so that there is really a partnership or a kind of ebb and flow about the way in which the work happens. If the other person is not willing or cannot participate for whatever reason, it is one of those moments to draw upon the resources of the person sitting next to you or of the church or of the community or of a spiritual director or a pastoral counselor or a therapist. There's a lot of options. So let me give you an illustration. <clears throat> um, many years ago, I had a friend who had a particular piece of her history that she had not disclosed to anybody else, which is common. She had not disclosed it in her adulthood in ways that made her friends aware of what had happened to her when she was a teenager. And in the process of telling me this story, it was also clear that the persons who were most intimately involved in that moment literally had died and or were not known by this person, by my friend. So her parents had died by this time. And the other person involved in the situation, it was not known where that person was. So the question became, how do you do forgiveness in a mutual process when the other people are not there? 
she was a thoughtful, uh, wonderful human being who created some ways of thinking about this, like she wrote some of the letters, the laments. We did a series of laments together. Um, we did a kind of letter to the people who were no longer living. And we did the, what, would, what do you think those people would say were they to know the fullness of the situation? All very healing. But the most healing moment came when she decided to invite some of her friends into a liturgy of lament and hope. Uh, she was a deeply churched person, knew what liturgy was, not all of her friends did, but that didn't really matter because she knew what it meant and she was able to craft a liturgy that allowed forgiveness to take place as much as it could and then to release it to God. Now that to me is a really powerful vision for how we do forgiveness. We do our work and we can't control what the work is that other people do, but we still do our work. And it does release something. There's been this ancient, not ancient, but particularly psychological debate about who the forgiveness is for. And in the 60s and 70s, when psychology was really coming into its own in a popular way, yeah, a lot of um, pastoral counselors and others would write about forgiveness as something that is for me, the one who, who's experiencing the pain, the harm. And while I think that's true, what I really think is you can't change me without changing the relationships around me. So it's really not for me, it's really for the community, for my relationships with others, for the broader sense of how I live in the world. So again, forgiveness, always relational, and possible to do even when the people are not in the room, which is the good news because God has a really nice imagination and isn't dependent on physical presence. Um, I wanna talk just a little bit about um, three questions that I didn't lift up yesterday. They're, they were on the sheet from yesterday, but I find them helpful when people are stuck, particularly when they feel globalized like I want to forgive somebody, but I don't know exactly who to forgive. This happens especially in institutional life or in community life. Um, if you've been uh, disappointed or let down or in, uh, an injustice has occurred in the context of a community, it becomes kind of global, like who do I forgive? So one of the things that's important, there are three questions, who needs to be forgiven for what and by whom? Who needs to be forgiven for what and by whom? They're not magic questions, they're just questions that help us step back and say, well, what am I really angry about or what am I really hurt about? What is it that really is troubling me and how do I name it in a way that helps me actually begin to do that piece of it? Because some of you said this yesterday so eloquently, it was really, I was really touched by your sharing yesterday. You are surprised when you start to do the process, you think you're headed one way and it's the turns that are so fun, right? Well, sometimes they're fun, but the turns really become meaningful. And those turns are unpredictable. You never know what's gonna arise and it's just another piece of the whole. So kind of stepping back sometimes, particularly if um, people that you're friends with or, or uh, companioning on a journey, say, well, who do you think needs to be forgiven? And 
for what? And who needs to do the forgiveness? If you haven't read the little book, The Sunflower by Simon Wiesenthal, it is, uh, don't, re don't try to sit down and read it because it's short in, t in an hour and think you're gonna be able to uh, get up and do something afterwards. It is a powerful narrative. Uh, Simon was uh, in, in an, a camp, a, a concentration camp, was taken to the bedside of a German soldier and the German soldier asked for forgiveness from Simon. Simon goes back to the camp and talks to his colleagues, his friends in the camp about whether one person can forgive on behalf of a whole community and what does it mean to forgive someone as in to let them off the hook and why do you do that and how do you do that? Think about that. It's a very powerful narrative and the if you get the latest version of it, you always get responses from uh, a number of people about how they think about what forgiveness is and who needs to be forgiven and can you forgive on behalf of a community and what's God's role in it. It's a very powerful read. But part of the interesting piece of that story for me is that um, it raises the question of um, what do we think we're doing when we say we forgive you on behalf of a community or when you ask for forgiveness from a community. The Rocky Mountain Conference um, for years has wrestled with um, indigenous people's rights and the fact that basically we're all on land that's not ours. And the Sand Creek Massacre, which happened in uh, part of Central South Colorado, was instigated in part by a leading Methodist clergy person. <clears throat> And this has been ongoing for years. Well, in the last um, quadrennium, because that's what bishops do, quadrennia, right? Uh, the bishop in particular, um, Elaine Stanowski, uh, began to gather people together and really wrestle with the issue and did some formal apologies and rituals that didn't heal the trauma, but began to take steps toward a bigger sense of healing. It can be incredibly powerful in community, and there are many things for which communities need to ask for forgiveness. We're better at thinking that people need, that we need to ask uh, other people to forgive or to be forgiven, and it's hard to say we did this wrong, and it's our forebears, and no, we were not there, but we have certainly profited from our forebears. We rest on the shoulders of their sins, if you will, the sins of the generations. So I encourage us to think not just about the individual ways that this uh, forgiveness process works, but also the larger communal aspects of it. <clears throat> um, emotion, we haven't talked a lot about emotions. Have you had a few though while you're here? Just checking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yes. This is, uh, these, uh, when I say I want you to befriend your emotions, I really do mean it. If you can find ways to be friends with your emotional life, your spiritual life will be enriched. If anger does not scare you because it is your friend and spiritual ally, as Andy Lester used to talk about it, he, he did this wonderful book on anger. Um, it's kind of a classic in our field. It's complex. 
But one of his uh, wonderful pieces, contributions, was to recognize that anger is a spiritual ally in resisting powers and finding ways toward justice. If there's not anger, the people do not rise up. If you, don't, if you can't get in touch with your anger about something that happened to you, it is hard to do the forgiveness process. It becomes the energy in some ways that invites you forward. Now, <clears throat> feelings in and of themselves are not to be judged. You have feelings. They are part of the goodness of God's creation. They're the richness of God's creativity in your being. It's hard to befriend them sometimes because we've learned that some emotions are good and some ones are bad. And that's a vocabulary that doesn't help. Instead, if we think about how does this emotion tell me something about something that's important to me, because anger oftentimes leads you, if you follow it and you let it lead you, it will take you to your commitments and values that are at stake. When I get angry when I read the news from this morning, um, what I recognize is I have some values that are deeply embedded it, when I follow that anger, it's not just at something, it's that I feel like some of the things that are most important to me are being tossed out the window or being unjustly um, adjudicated. So follow your anger, let it be your friend, don't let it overwhelm you, but when it does, then you wanna practice this art of breathing and sit with it uh, and figure out why it is so strong, because it may be related not just to that, but to many other things. Um, the same kind of um, things with sadness. Sadness is a very important feeling. Without it, we would not recognize that something that we've lost is really important to us. Um, like probably many of you, I journey with a mother who um, has actually lived with us for uh, 12 years, and in the last two years of that has been in a nursing home up the street. And um, she still recognizes me, but doesn't always, she has a very active imagination. <laughs> yeah. And if you think that you have to help her understand the truth, that's a worthless cause, because her truth is really her truth in that moment, and why bother, right? Yeah. And it's incredibly sad at times because pieces of her that I know are disappearing in ways that she does not know. And there's a sadness, and that's okay. Now, if I let it overwhelm me, it would be hard to get up in the morning and go to work and push paper as an administrator. But when I let it guide me toward what's important to me and the values that I hold, then I get in touch with things like mm, my mom's reminding me when I was a young age that communion and forgiveness were connected. Or my mom's kind of persistence. She was not one who sat down and waited for the world to change. She persisted and moved and did things. So uh, these are important things. These feelings are really important. Now, how you deal with the feelings of others, now that's a whole nother story. <laughs> because the feelings of others, oftentimes, um, people who are uh, un unable to access their feelings tend to look stonewall like they don't have any, but never trust that, it's in their toes. 
And sometimes it takes a long time to get from their toes up. What you want to watch for are when people um, uh, spread their feelings on you in ways that are not fair. <laughs> like um, they blame you for things over which you have no control. Or they accuse you of things which you may have a little something to do with, but you haven't quite figured out a response yet. So paying attention to the feelings of others is important, but they're their feelings, and you just have to figure out what you want to do in response. So this is leading me to talk about something called empathy and attunement, um, technical terms in the world of psychology. And in the world of faith, I might talk about graceful acceptance of the other. So empathy is a fairly sophisticated skill. How many of you um, have been around babies? Yeah, and um, when you look at them and smile, what do they do? Yeah, if, yeah if the, if, it's called attunement. They're learning at that very young age that there's an attunement of their emotional life with particularly their major primary caretakers, grandparents, really have this one down, right? Because when you're a grandparent, you just don't have the same kind of stuff you had with your own children, right? And what I've been told is that smile just takes on a whole different value. And there's an attunement that happens. <laughs> there we are. There we are. There we are. See? So at a very young age, children in the best of circumstances learn this skill. But not everybody has the opportunity to enhance that skill as they grow up for all kinds of reasons. It may be because they're in an environment that doesn't nurture it and encourage it, which is why churches are so important. Because um, churches can become communities for children in ways that are safer and more life-giving than sometimes their own families can provide. It's not an indictment on their families. It's a gift of the church and it's part of our call. But there are also other reasons why people can't uh, become attuned. For example, um, uh, my sister also lives with us. We have one of those nice normal families. <laughs> uh, and um, she knows I talk about this because she and I have written an article together about what it's like for her. She has uh, schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia. So it's very hard for her to, to go to church, for example. I'm quite, uh, Genesis has been a wonderful place for her, but it's really hard for her to go to church because who do you talk to in church? A God you cannot see, right? And what do you all say in church? Listen for the voice of God. Now, if you have voices in your head all the time, how do you tell which one is God? And how do you figure out how to navigate that? So as you're in church and you're with people who have some kind of uh, genuine struggle with mental health issues, these are human beings who for whatever biological, biochemical, physiological, maybe even emotional reason, cannot access the ability to attune in the same way. 
that probably most of us in this, I'm assuming most of us in this room can do. So it's not that they're, um, that they're not human beings or children of God, it is that the capacity for empathy and attunement is a little bit shifted. So then what you have to do is you have to figure out how do you help them access and nurture and grow into that attunement and or that empathy in whatever way is possible and the capacities to do this vary by individuals. So I swear some people are born with so much attunement they, can, they do not know where they end and somebody else begins. And oftentimes there are people in helping professions and somebody else's pain is the one they take home at night because it's now their pain. It's not, again, an indictment. It is a reality that people live with and helping them figure out how to establish kind of the appropriateness between your story and my story and where you begin and I end, that's a gift of the church again. Uh, finding ways to help people gain empathy because forgiveness ultimately requires empathy. At some point, you have to be able to say, that person who harmed me the most is as much a child of God as I am. Even if they intentionally harmed you, they are ch a child of God. And once you begin to recognize empathically how it is that they have come to be who they are, you begin to see the kind of ways in which the vicissitudes of life have made it impossible for them to figure out attunement or to figure out how to care for people or how to be kind. And you'll find this oftentimes uh, in particularly some of the ways in which we think about mental health because um, it's, a, it's a really hard categories to work with. But even in our common human ordinary life, your capacity for empathy grows over time. I have a different kind of empathy when I uh, am 62 than I did at 18, thank goodness. It just changes because of our experiences. But here's what we're discovering about the brain chemistry, because all of this gets connected to brain chemistries as well. The ability to have empathy changes with the greater distance one has from particular, particularly the suffering of the world. So literally there's research going on that suggests that the wealthier a culture or a community or a person gets, the less empathy they have for those who have the least. Now think about what we talk about in the gospel. God is countercultural because as those of us in uh, those of us in this room could afford to be here. And the more we increase our socioeconomic status, the farther we get from people who have the least. And it makes it harder to figure out who's the stranger and who's the neighbor and who's the migrant and the immigrant and what do we do with that? So if you put that into the context of our current political debates, it raises some interesting questions, which I'm not gonna go into, but it does begin to raise a question for the church. How do we continue to help people understand things that are not in their capacity to understand? That's empathy. Make sense?
<laughs> All right. I'm trying to remember when we started. <clears throat> I want to do just the t top of this sheet because it will uh, give us just a couple more pieces, and then I want to end with this justice-making stuff. So relational challenges also show up in forgiveness because um, just like we grow in our capacity for empathy, we also grow in our sophistication of how to have a good fight. <laughs> right? So John Gottman, who's a person that I like a lot in terms of his writing on uh, particularly intimate partnerships and marriages, he actually talks about this as the four horsemen, which I find so intriguing. Um, uh, well, yeah, and he's a Jewish... He's a Jewish um, psychologist in Seattle who's done this phenomenal work, but, but these are helpful categories nonetheless. So there are four things that get in the way of a relationship at any time, and there are antidotes to those four things as he talks about them. So, and they're on the top of the sheet. The first one is criticism. So if you're in a relationship where somebody's always critical of everything you do, um, and this sometimes becomes cumulative, then sometimes uh, the criticism wears away and chips away at the relationship in ways that you don't even know is happening until it's too late. And, um, okay, so those of you who are um, in situations where you deal with human beings. <laughs> so here's what happens to me and see if there are any correlations in your life. So I happen to uh, work a position that's um, middle management right? A dean is a middle manager. And there's not a lot of times that people come up to you and say, I am so grateful, <laughs> right, that you do this boundary training for us. Or I am so grateful that you hold the line when that person gets out of line. They don't come up and say that. Instead, what do they do? Because uh, I work with really smart people who have learned that criticism is the way that you do scholarship. And now, once I figured that out, I figured out this is not a personal attack on me. This is because we're really smart people who learn how to do scholarship by criticizing other people who haven't done it the way we do it. The antidote to criticism is to complain without blame, which is different than criticism. Complain without blame says um, something more like, um, when you do when, when you do the boundary training and remind me about my boundaries, I don't like it because it makes me think that I have to watch how I give a hug to someone in the church. And I go, thank you, yes it does. But when they come to me and say, I hate that you do this, that's a criticism, or I don't like the way you do this, that's a kind of criticism that's more personal. Now, the problem is when you're dealing with um, human beings, sometimes criticism seems to come more than good stuff. Like people don't come up to you and say, I am so glad of the way that you all sit here every time we've had this session and nod and smile <laughs> and talk. It's your job, yeah. But instead, even the lack of good stuff begins to kind of build and it makes a difference in the way you relate to everybody. Because you begin to expect people to criticize you. And once you begin to expect people to criticize you, what do you do? You kind of go, hmm, I'm not gonna get, okay, so. Defensiveness, 
Righteous indignation or victimhood, as John talks about it. Um, when people get defensive, the antidote to that is to begin to take responsibility for things. So if I get defensive about something, the way to do a better way of being in relationship is to say, well, I, don't, I understand that you don't like the way I do this, and I'll take responsibility for this piece because I know I do that in a way that irritates people. That's re taking responsibility. That's the accountability structures. That's different than kind of having to get defensive and push back. And if we could help people in our churches begin to kind of take responsibility as they should and can, not falsely, but as they can, it will help us have relationships. Contempt. Contempt is the absolutely hardest thing to come back from in particularly marriages and intimate partnerships. Once you develop contempt for someone, it is hard to ever once again see them as a child of God. And contempt is different than just, I don't like what you do. Contempt is you are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under the table without saying, and you are forgiven. It's the kind of inability to even be in someone's presence, contempt. And you'll see this twist sometimes, but you watch for it because it won't help you do forgiveness. And the last one is stonewalling, which oftentimes comes from a flooding of emotions, so people just shut down, which is not a bad thing. Sometimes, because of our emotional life, we just have to stop and you just rest, and you rest, and you get a little perspective, and maybe you invite a person to rest with you to help you get that perspective, and then you can kind of go back and say, I was really, 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 really stirred up by that, so let's try this again. So it's that kind of capacity to begin to see some of these behaviors and stop them before they become detrimental to relationships in general that helps us do the forgiveness process. Make sense? Okay, we've got, uh, how many minutes do we have, Bob? Five? Okay. Uh, what's, uh, anything, questions, comments, concerns that you have at the moment? I'm gonna help us move into the next silent time. Okay, so I end every one of my classes in the seminary. The last session we do a thing on how do you take care of yourself and your beingness while you're in the middle of being in pastoral leadership or working with people who bring lots of issues to you that you can't solve. And I do that because I understand that sometimes what we do is we give a lot to others and we forget to take care of ourselves. And in that process, it's hard to nurture and sustain the work, whatever the work is. So this is the piece of what do you need from yourself, from God, from one another, and from the community around you in order to continue to develop the kinds of capacities for forgiveness that you want to develop. It may include things like I need to make sure that I continue my spiritual disciplines of silence, and I'm gonna do that. Then you kind of think clearly about how you're gonna do that specifically. Like, don't just say, I think I might like to kind of think about maybe kind of thinking 
I might want to do silence. That won't get you anywhere, right? Those of you who have tried this practice, right? That doesn't get you anywhere. You have to say, I am going to spend this time and this time, but don't set yourself up and say, I'm going to do this every day for three hours. Because unless that's all you have to do, you won't do it. So be realistic. You know how to set a goal. Be realistic. Be smart about it. Make it something that you can do. And then remember to forgive yourself when you fail, because you will. So uh, a good illustration of this is that I know that when I'm really stressed, um, the first thing to go is my getting every evening when I get home from visiting my mom, I try to get on my elliptical. But I'm really tired at that time of day. And then I fail once and what do I do? Fail again and again. And then I begin to feel shame because I'm not smart enough to figure out how to do everything that I'm supposed to do in my life in the given amount of time that I have. Oh yeah, and I'm supposed to you know, take care of other things. So the piece that you have to kind of learn is how to step back and take really small steps. Whether it's your physical life, your spiritual life, your emotional life, your relational life. What are the one or two things that would make a difference if you did them? And how will you account for them in the coming days? How will you do them? What will help you do them? And here's where I want you to think about the community around you and the support of a community around you. You, um, you do have to walk your own journey, but you don't have to do it by yourself. That's the good news. Um, I oftentimes use the illustration of uh, rock bottom. When you hit rock bottom, what's supposed to be the good news? Yeah, nowhere to go at it. But here's what I really like. When you hit rock bottom, you're on a rock. <laughs> And you can sit until you collect yourself to figure out how to get up. And if you're really fortunate, the rock is big enough for you to invite someone to sit with you on that rock and say, I just need you to help me figure out what's the next step. So who in your life do you turn to? And then who's the next person on that list? Because if you only have one person that you always turn to, that becomes fatiguing for a relationship. So maybe you turn to your um, spiritual director and then you turn to your partner or you turn to your covenant group person or whoever it is, but make sure you have one or two or three people that you could invite to sit on that rock because darn it, by the time you hit that rock bottom, somebody might have moved out of the country and you need somebody else. You just gotta attend to these things. So make sure you figure out who's going to walk the journey with you. Who's going to be with you in ways that are helpful. And I want to end with a little piece that um, Gary Gunderson, who's written a lot of stuff on healthy communities physically and in other ways, says this about the church. The church becomes a place where we accompany one another, convene, connect, tell stories, give sanctuary, bless, pray, and endure. So I want to encourage you to find someone in your church community that you want to invite onto a journey of being church together. Because it is that way of being in the middle of the muddle, if you will, 
that leads us toward hopefulness, toward re uh, reconciliation, toward justice making, toward renewal, toward weaving together a kind of community that brings richness that we can't even imagine yet. So on the bottom of the sheet, there are just some questions. Feel free to ignore them if they're not helpful. Um, find something else to think about. And we will come back at what time? At uh, 10.40. 10.40. And there will be enough time to get it all done. Go in peace. And may the grace of God sink from your heads down into your hearts so that it flows out of your hands and your mouth and your ears and your eyes so that this body may be the body of Christ in the world. Amen. Amen.